and welcome to Retro Encounter episode 193. We are bringing a special topic today, mythology and folklore in RPGs. And with me, I have Mike Pelosi. Hello. And Lucy Gray. Hi. And I'm Hilary Andreff. I'll be kind of mining for now. So I thought it'd be fun to start by just asking a little bit about your mythology background and what we do in recording and mythology and RPG. So we'll start with you, Lucy. Hmm. Well, I mean, I originally started as a Latin major in college. Uh, well, classical mythology specifically, and then wandered over into medieval history uh, for my undergrad degree because um, I really wanted to make money as an uh, adult, apparently. Um, I've had always a fascination with uh, mythology, uh, spending 10 years in the museum world, doing a lot of research on various different works and the use of mythology in art. Uh, so I've got quite a bit. Yeah, that's some rich experience. And I mean, mythology is something that's had a pervasive influence over culture over time so i'm sure it's really interesting to see some of that from the museum lens yes awesome how about you silicy right well um i'm almost another near classics major i uh, i took about uh, 12 or so credits in uh in Greek and Roman history and Greek mythology and thought about majoring in classics, but I was unwilling to learn Greek or Latin to do so. <laughs> so I ended up majoring in, uh, in, uh, in geology and hydrology instead. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've had a lifelong fascination with mythology dating back to a book of Greek myths that my parents would read to me like, you know, like a, like a book of fairy tales as a child. And I still have a copy of that today, even though it's a, I, I've gone through three because they've become so worn over time. I mean, Mythology and folklore is so is sort of so pervasive in so much of the fantasy uh, stories and video games that I enjoy that it only sort of deepened my fascination with it, and I've you know continued to keep mythological texts and uh, and books of folklore around that and that I read enthusiastically. It's uh it, it's especially I mean you know growing up in the English speaking world, it's mythology has such a huge influence on Western civilization and literature that you can't avoid it really. And I, and just the more I, the more I read, the more I like it. Agreed. I, I have a similar experience. I kind of come at it from more of a literature sort of lens. That's what I studied in school, but I grew up reading a bunch of different myths and legends. And like you said, as I started seeing some of those stories being referenced in RPGs, it just made me want to know more. So I am turn red more, and there you have it. Okay, so moving from there, let's start talking about some of the precise ways that mythology has inspired RPGs. I mean, there are a lot of different games, a lot of different ways that mythology has made its way into these games. There are lots of many, many direct references, but also many, many indirect references. One of my first thoughts was, Joseph Campbell, who wrote a lot about mythology, talking about the hero's journey. I mean, if you're thinking of it that way, many RPG protagonists are in that kind of journey of self-discovery and tick off a lot of the boxes there. But what are your, some, of thought, some of your thoughts on the categories? Well, um, remarkably, we talked about the Campbell's hero's journey, I think, three years ago on a podcast when we were, uh, I think it was Josh, Chris, and I on the Child of Light episodes. But um, 
but like the hero's journey is almost like almost always you know uh a per a person is chosen uh they have they undergo hardship they 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 travel the world and then they uh and then they either either achieve a goal or achieve an unexpected goal along the way and that's i i don't know i i don't know the hero's journey um boxes well enough to identify them all properly but i think that because myths and legends are sort of our oldest stories and even formative stories for like the belief systems of uh mostly ancient peoples that they sort of influence all of storytelling going forward <laughs> and uh, i mean we don't really know what the first myths were i think the, i think like the oldest i think there's like a a, a record of uh, the tale of gilgamesh or something that's from like 3500 bc but uh like you've in these sort of the mythological frameworks, we see every kind of story and RPGs, because they're almost always stories about heroes or uh, or stories about um, about rescuing or saving something. A lot of them will take direct influence from myths and legends, and uh, and also just like from a basic reference standpoint. I mean, the the imagery and names of gods and monsters and locations from mythology are all over RPGs. Why and I mean it's basic storytelling where you're dealing with a person in some ways starting a journey um, and in that process growing and changing so that at the end either their environment has changed so that their uh, world has either become a better or worse place or more importantly they've changed in some way that allows them to be a better person by the end of the story and that's sort of the basics of all human history of what stories have resonated and uh kept it's interesting because it really i think it really does go beyond the idea of just simply explaining things that aren't completely understood which yeah some some of some stories do that but there's definitely more of an overarching theme to it so, yeah, basically, RPGs, I mean, place names from mythology. One thing I notice a lot is enemies and creatures are frequently used across games. Oh, yeah. You definitely have your harpy-like enemies. and You quite often see Medusa-like characters, um, sea creatures based on myth, um, dragons and the like so you get a lot of uh, elements even when the story isn't directly referencing a specific myth or story right in this series you have two important and long-standing rpg series that take a spin on it where they have entire collections of helpful mythological beings they are sort of the overpowered surprise ace in the hole kind of thing that you can utilize in battles, and that's the summons in Final Fantasy and <laughs> series. So it's just enemies. They're, they're helping out the party as well. It's always interesting with, like, uh, particularly when so many people, like, some of their first experiences are games like Final Fantasy, and it will throw out all these names that you're vaguely aware of, even if you don't know mythology, like Odin right. or Shiva. And it's interesting that, particularly, at least with Final Fantasy, you get a lot of these names evoking power, though sometimes they're completely... Uh, disconnected from the actual myths that those names are involved in. Yeah, um, Final Fantasy's Odin is not 
is is not directly the uh, Norse mythological Odin. He's sort of the Final Fantasy Odin is sort of made an old legend for himself. I, I don't I don't think the Norse Odin has a sword called Zantetsuken. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, Odin is a is a king wearing a helmet, and he does and he does ride an eight legged horse. So there are a. Uh, you know, like imagery similarities between the mythological Odin and the Final Fantasy Odin, but they're like again, it's almost just the the names and uh, and and like the feeling of evoking power and familiarity with these names that I think uh, that that are more useful than than directly borrowing these designs. Like they're they're not gonna make Odin a uh, you know a one-eyed king with two ravens and two wolves and a spe- and a giant spear necessarily. They're just they but p- enough people know what Odin is and are familiar with him that they did their own interpretation of Odin but with sort of the clout that comes with the name Odin. If if anything the uh the persona Odin is a little bit more sim- uh more similar to the mythological root than uh the Final Fantasy Odin is because I mean at least he has a spear. <laughs> well, and that's yeah. the that's the interesting thing about persona persona has all these demons based on various mythology particularly um in japanese and indian mythology and, and they're and, most... and norse they they, they there's uh, in in some of the old smt games there was basically just factions of entire different mythologies like like all of the indian gods and goddesses were sort of one faction and you'd be they'd be competing with a faction that was mostly norse gods and goddesses there's even a uh there's even a, a a group of enemies in, or I should say, a, a faction of characters in old SMT games that are basically choirs of angels, and you fight four of them in a row in uh in Persona Five even. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they kind of like also vaguely group them into arcanas. They do. So that a lot of yeah, so a lot of those like angelic personas are in Judgment, I think. Uh, it, well, I mean, every Persona demon is a uh, is a character or a demon from an older Shin Megami Tensei, Tensei games, and the and the old SMT games will organize them in like the deity race and the demon race, and when they sort them into Arcana, it's 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 less consistent. Like the angels are usually all judgment, but the Norse gods are almost always split between multiple Arcanas and are just and are just mm-hmm. and are just mm-hmm. one of the strongest of their particular Arcana. So it's it's right. not that consistent, like you know, uh, grouping to Arcana, but, uh, I, I think the, um, like the, the persona, the, the persona from persona are supposed to be like mental representations of power that come from your soul. And because myths and legends are powerful, that's, you know, sometimes persona manifests as creatures of myth and legend I, is, it, it's kind of hard to say whether, like whether they're just SMT references or uh, more specific mythological references, but Persona and SMT both really, really strive to adapt from myths and legends just as much as possible. Yes, though nobody can quite explain why Mara is a giant dick. You know, I don't have an explanation for that. <laughs> nope. It was, it, it was, I mean, the first Mara, I think, was in Persona 1, and it was manifested from the lust of a sort of gross classmate of one of the of the main characters. But... I mean, it's also that's also Persona One, and I want to talk about that game as little as possible. A lot of those games almost invite Jungian archetype sort of view of the persona, especially four. Mm. They're suggesting that you come into your persona once you beat your shadow, and you can improve them through social links or over time. So it's a slightly different spin than a Final Fantasy, where they're just supposed to be massively powerful. External. 
Yeah, we, sometimes have their own village. Well, with, with Final Fantasy, they're they're implied that they come from the ether or uh, come from another world, and you're summoning them to briefly augment your power. And for Persona, it is as you said, like it comes from the Jungian concept of the shadow, and it's sort of the power comes from within. And by enriching your soul and empowering your soul, you can summon more powerful Personae. But it's it's different almost with each Final Fantasy game. In Final Fantasy fourteen, I don't want to go too deep into Final Fantasy lore, oh, yeah. but um, uh, a lot of these powerful gods and goddesses that are, you know, uh, mo- mostly from old Final Fantasy games, but sometimes from more general mythology. Uh, basically, you can summon these beings called primals if you have a lot of crystals to, you know, just to gather enough energy for them to manifest, and also faith. Like the more pa- the more something is believed in or supported by the people, the more powerful it will be. And that, you know, already comes into the power of mythology. Like, the, the, like mythology and legends have lasting power because of belief. And, and so it, it's different game to game, but, like, Final Fantasy sometimes treats these mythological summons as otherworldly beings and sometimes treats them as coming from the hearts of, uh, of, of people worshipping them. And I think that... That almost makes it resonate more as mythological, even though I don't think King Mogglemog is comes from a you know human belief system. <laughs> oh, it doesn't. No, no. Although his his uh, inspirational story of like climbing a rope ladder between heaven and earth is is d- does sound very mythological. <laughs> it does. Play Final Fantasy fourteen, people. It's great. <laughs> and all and also in that game, instead of they don't make Odin a, a regular. A regular summon, o- Odin. Like Odin is basically a summoned sword that takes over the uh, the being of anyone that picks it up, which I thought is a, a cool interpretation of Final Fantasy IV, uh, or Odin. Uh, almost as cool as one that transforms into a uh, Japanese thunder god after you save him from being turned to stone. <laughs> which thunder god, Sasano? Right on, right on, right. Final Fantasy VI. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Odin turns into Raiden, and that's the only game where it happens. An interesting subversion of North mythology with Japanese mythology. Yeah, I was not <laughs> expecting that at all. Um, but, I mean, we're floating around Norse mythology a lot. It, I think it might be almost the most appropriated mythology for Japanese RPGs. For some reason, Japanese people just love Vikings. Because you, you see that stuff everywhere. There's a like, the entire basis of the Tales series was um like a, a a world tree called Yggdrasil and ancient civilizations called Thor and Odin and uh even oh, the mana series yeah. dealing once again with a, a giant life tree that is basically uh holding together the entire world and tying back in Valkyrie profile is very much tied into the North mythology. Yeah, and Valkyrie profile was uh, created by um, Triace people that worked on the original tales of Fantasia. So that, that group definitely loves Norse mythology. And, and, and I mean, Valkyrie profile is very explicitly set in North in, uh, in a Norse world. Uh, same thing as um, Odin sphere, which is not, not by the Valkyrie profile people, but <laughs> you know, in both of those games, there's an Odin and there are Valkyries that uh, go on, you know, some, very unusual adventures. Which is interesting because then when you look at American-made RPGs, you start getting more and more in the Greek and Roman classical myths like God of War and things like that. So it sort of makes you wonder of, you know, how different societies move towards different myths. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to totally separate 
Western-made RPGs from Norse myth because uh, a lot of it is inspired by sort of traditional Western fantasy, which of which the most one of the most prominent examples is Lord of the Rings, and Lord of the Rings is a almost naked adaptation of the uh, Ring of the Nibelung story from Norse myth. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Norse myth in uh, Western fantasy and RPGs also, but maybe but maybe I I, I don't know I, I just I just keep seeing the pattern that uh, Japanese RPGs borrow from Norse myth a lot when they when they have a less obvious connection than they would to say Japanese or Chinese folk tales. That's uh, for sure. But I mean, it's, it's not strictly just Greek, Norse, and East Asian culture that uh, uh, art, like RPGs draw from from myths. Uh, like. There's an unusual amount of like of like Middle Eastern and pre-Judeo-Christian myth in these games. I mean, I mean, there's a uh, there there's a, a text that's I think I, I think it's from Western Europe, but it's adept, uh, adapted from parts of the Kabbalah called Solomon's Key. Yeah, that is a uh, has sort of a lot of you know sort of foundation like foundational. 16th, 17th century witchcraft stuff in it. And it also includes a list of 72 demons you can summon. And I think that probably more than half of those have shown up in SMT or Persona games over the years. <laughs> and even going back to Final Fantasy, you have Ifrit, which is a, mm -hmm. a infernal jinn uh, from Middle Eastern myth. So you're once... It, there's ties from all over the world in uh, various RPGs. And, and also Bahamut from... Uh, maybe the most well-known Final Fantasy summon, I, I believe is sort of a world turtle from a pre-Islam Persian myth. Uh, like, it's, a, it's like a, a turtle that swims around the world with the world on its back. I don't, I don't know the entire Bahamut story, but yeah, they, they borrow a lot of names from, uh, from Middle Eastern folk, folklore and myth as well. Uh, and, uh, and also maybe <laughs> Solomon's Key is most prominent in the very occult-themed... Uh, Shadowheart series, where you have to collect names of demons uh, from Solomon's Key and arrange them in an order following a story to as part of, as a side quest in the game. Uh, uh, Hillary, you've played uh, Shadowheart's Covenant, right? Oh yeah. The, the the Solomon's Key side quest is like my favorite side quest in that game that is unrelated to challenging wolves for dominance. <laughs> yeah, it, it. I don't even know how to describe it. Like it's just incredibly fun just basically placing all these traditional demons in different areas based on which ones get along with mm. <laughs> other ones and where they want to live. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, the puzzle of it is like taking the little story vignettes about the demons that they give you and, and arranging them in a grid basically. But, uh, right. but, the, but the mythological origin of Solomon's key is some, you know, uh, like, like early, it's an early occult text that's, uh, that's adapted from some myth and folklore, but was but probably was mostly just written by a bunch of exploitative Italians. Sorry, <laughs> it's uh, but but it, but, 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 but so but much still, is written cool. by exp uh, exploitative um, Italians. Oh yeah, oh yes. Europeans and you know. Ah, no, I'm, as a uh, as a lapsed Catholic, I'm 100 percent okay with blaming the Catholic Church for a lot of this. <laughs> Does that mean you also want to take a Bible and start whacking people over the head with it? Oh yes, yeah, from the first game. <laughs> um, right. I, I don't you probably use that text as a weapon, Alice. <laughs> Quite literally. Uh, I've only played Shadow Hearts Covenant. I'm I'm afraid. No, but uh, particularly uh, the original Shadow Hearts. There's a lot of the biblical references in there. 
talking about ascension and using a lot of the folklore and legends from biblical times to sort of build out the story, even using the legend of turning uh, lead into gold and Roger Bacon, uh, which is a theme throughout most of the Shadow Hearts Ooh, series. So did he learn how to turn lead into bacon? Because that sounds delicious. <laughs> well, and the whole emigrant manuscript, actually, that's that's a good point, because that whole series revolves around this mysterious, ancient, mythological-level text called the Emigre Manuscript, and that has a bunch of forbidden knowledge, mostly probably about how to bring back the dead. Um, and people, it's really, really powerfully appealing to people who want to bring back people they've lost, and that's gotten various characters into trouble throughout the series. So. I mean, does it, isn't that basically for every single Shadow Hearts game? Let's bring back the dead. Nothing can go wrong now. Yeah, Kadelka too. Mm-hmm. So that's a cool little theme in that series is that how some of this knowledge actually can lead to misfortune. Yeah, they do monkey's paw a little bit. Like they, they, uh, they really like hammer home the occult themes and also that the that great power has uh, drawbacks and downsides, and yep. uh, they really take attack into Japanese folklore in this in the in the latter part of Shadow Hearts Covenant, where with the you know the, like I mean, shoot, there's a there's isn't Susano or the, or some other um, Japanese mythological figures the run of final bosses in the game, and uh, and it you know to also touches back into the like uh, reviving the dead and. It, it yeah it, it the Shadow Heart series is just an absolute feast for people interested in in mythology or the occult because it's a celebration of it and a sort of dark subversion of it that's really cool yeah I mean I mean you literally have uh, one of the characters going to the land of the dead to uh, basically revive part of his past and reclaim his memories mm -hmm. oh yeah there's just sort of that metaphorical image of the graveyard too. Mm -hmm. Yuri's fusions fit into the category of sort of like helpful, powerful, mythological beings, although the influences that there are, some of them are more clear cut than others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lucy and I were talking about the uh, influence of Norse mythology in Japanese RPGs, and we mentioned Valkyrie Profile a little bit, but maybe didn't go super deep into it. But uh, but Hillary, you and Rob Fenner, and I think also our, and I think also Steph Sabidlo were on a Valkyrie Profile podcast about a year and a half ago. I think like it was like like early 2018. Sounds right. So uh, like, uh, is is that game more than just a celebration of Norse myth? Because I think they go they use the mythology in, in more than just a referential and sort of character name way. They do, they do. It's kind of a second category of game that I really wanted to get into talking about, which is where they take a whole myth or a whole tradition and they build a new story or make it something slightly new from that. And I think Okami is another good example of that. I mean, it's very, very rooted in mythology, but we'll get to that. So yeah, Valkyrie Profile is steeped in Norse mythology because you play as a Valkyrie, uh, traditionally a chooser of the slain who chooses fallen warriors to fight for Odin in Valhalla. So the game quite literally opens in Valhalla with this Valkyrie being awakened. And your whole task throughout the game is to 
recruit humans from Midgard, the, the human world, to fight mostly for you, but you do also transfer them up to Odin. That's one of the game mechanics. It's kind of cool. Come to me, my noble line uh, hero. Yes. Um, okay. So, and, and it's really cute because you get to then check in on the people that you've sent to Valhalla and they've won this war and they've uh, made friends with this god. And it's that's true. very actually uh, traditional North mythology where you have them fighting the battles of heaven yeah. at, continually in the afterlife. So it's kind of, it's interesting the way it's split and it's a good example of melding the traditional with something new because you have a party of these fallen warriors that you keep with you at any given time. But the ones that you transfer are working with Odin, Thor, Freya, all of those other traditional Norse gods and goddesses to win their fight with the Vanir, who traditionally are really not so much antagonists, but an older group of gods that sent over Freya and her brother as sort of a token of goodwill and and uh and Njord as well they're they're, they're usually yeah. they're usually not uh like you said they're usually not evil they're just sort of other and um what? and oh but shoot there was one vanir witch that like that started the easier vanir uh clash that ended up in a, in a hostage exchange basically right but I, I i don't remember her name but yeah but yeah it, it, they they make the vanir sort of uh, more more blanketly evil in Valkyrie profile than I think the than I think the mythological texts do. They do, and they kind of conflate some of them with some of the giants who are around in Norse mythology. Like Surt, I think in the B is the main villain in the B ending of Valkyrie profile, and he's definitely affiliated with the giants traditionally. So they they kind of take some liberties, but in doing that. I mean, it fits better into the whole flow of the the game and kind of becomes its own thing. And another another interesting thing about that is you can actually boost your warriors' personality traits as well before you send them to Valhalla. So that's yeah. So you're you're sure that Valkyrie profile isn't actually a dating sim because I'm getting some mixed messages here. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it's not. All right. There's very little dating happening in Valhalla. <laughs> Says you. When, when, <laughs> when were you last in Valhalla? That's true. Fair. <laughs> you do actually also visit some of the other worlds from Norse mythology as well. Um, Alfheim, where the elves hang out. You go there. It's your main chapter seven quest, I think. The, life, the light elves have an artifact that the Aesir and Odin want for, the, for a battle. So you have to kind of trick them and get it i mean valkyrie profile is interesting in that way because japan is for some reason right next to england oh yes they... <laughs> oh they're they're both islands islands are close <laughs> together right that, that, that's how geography works that's true that's worth that's worth mentioning they, they kind of melded a little bit of eastern culture in there too because in midgard most of it is very very kind of traditional european inspired um, but you have one island called Hailan that is very, very much like Japan. Another really interesting sort of subversive thing they do with it is 
especially in the second game, which I won't go too much into that, but there, there are hints that Odin started as an elf, which is kind of interesting, and obtained the power of creation. And because he was a half-elf, he could like grow and change, so that's how he got to be the most powerful god. Um, and that actually kind of happened. Spoilers for the ending of Valkyrie Profile, but that's sort of what ends up happening um, if you get the the A ending of Valkyrie Profile is Leneth, the Valkyrie, remembers about her human past, which makes her a more caring, compassionate being, um, and she ends up, somehow that gives her the strength and the ability to obtain the power of creation, so she ends up saving the entire world through that power from Loki. So that's another thing about it. Loki, he's kind of a hidden bad guy, quote, but he's very much the bad guy in Valkyrie Profile. Hmm. Loki's an interesting character in mythology, though. He's he does not start out bad. He starts he starts out as like the smartest and coolest frost giant, who uh, <laughs> is so impressive to Odin that they become blood uh, blood brothers very quickly. And there's a lot of myths where Loki goes on adventures with Odin or Thor, basically as a supporting good guy character. Oh, yeah. but, uh, but it, and it's not really until the sort of death of Baldur story and the Ragnarok story where he becomes more outwardly evil, even though you know right. he's he's the uh, technically the father of three of the most horrible monsters in the entire Norse uh, in the entire Norse universe. Which he's right. a, he's an interesting character, but he's a uh, also, I mean, what you might call a trickster god, like a mm -hmm. a, a god that is sort of anti-establishment and. And you know, engages in trickery to either serve their own ends or the people's ends or the gods' ends. And uh, oh, yeah. and I mean, and I'm only bringing up the trickster guard arch archetype at all because in Persona Five, every character in that game in that game, uh, their starting persona is a famous thief or rebel from folklore or history. Mm -hmm. And they and they evolve into and or actually I, I said evolve like their Pokemon, but after you after you complete their uh, their social link, um, they transform into a trickster god of sorts. Now exactly what they call a trickster god is kind of uh, kind of vague. It's it, like it's up to interpretation um, whether whether the choices they made are really rebels or really tricksters. But I, I don't know. Maybe I sort of wish they had gotten a little weirder. Like one of them was a Nancy or something. I would have loved to see a Nancy. That would have worked so well. Right? <laughs> that yeah. was that was my dream, but uh, no, nah, alas, no. We got uh, we got we got Milady instead. <laughs> well, it's right. and it's sort of really interesting that we got this trickster element, though it's not really openly discussed in the games. Whereas in Persona Four, you're dealing with the battle of Izanami versus Izanagi, one of the most major. Uh, mythologies of japanese origin and yeah it's, um, it's it's almost their it's maybe the most uh important creation myth of traditional japanese folklore and yeah. uh, and and all, and all of the characters have uh Jap japanese gods and heroes as their personae shout out to tomoe because she has a naginata and i do naginata so that was always made me really happy <laughs> And uh, and shout out to uh, Kamui, uh, Teddy's persona, which is also a name of a region in Okami, which is a, you know, a traditional god of the Ainu people of Japan, which I think is also underrepresented. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really wish they had pushed the rebellion agenda and gotten a little bit more 
deeply into that at multiple points during Persona 5, because I, I, I always wanted more of a feeling of it, of open rebellion and like it affecting the world more. I don't know. Yeah, I really like the anti-establishment uh, message of Persona 5 and the idea of like of um of stealing the sins out of people to be uh, to better themselves was was kind of brilliant. There's a, there's a lot of really cool conceptual stuff in Persona 5, but I wish that they and 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 I and uh I like the tone of the story a lot too mostly, but I sort of wish they had gone a little bit harder into the trickster nature. It's I mean, it's interesting because it's in many ways Persona 5 is the least mythology driven game because when you go back to persona 3 you're dealing with the concepts of death and you're dealing with the characters literally going to tartarus every night yeah it's, uh, it's, it's a they, they go into death a lot and but also death has changed and not death is the end and yeah, yeah and the uh, the journey of the soul and they use the metaphor of the tarot cards more strongly in that than in persona 4 or 5 and and right. uh, but uh, but also i mean the main character's ultimate persona is called messiah for christ's sakes yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, but I, 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 Persona Three also uses uh, more Greek mytho mythological um, elements than uh, than Persona Four or Five. Uh, amusingly, uh, in Shin Megami Tensei, the monster Cerberus is a is a minor character in a lot of the games. But he started out in one of the early games as just a recolor of the Nui monster. Uh, so it's so Cerberus in old SMT is a white lion with a snake tail. And not the and, and and not the and not the three and not the three-headed dog that we are used to Cerberus being, but in Persona Sorry. but in Persona Three, you have the uh, real MVP of the story, Koromaru, a, uh, yes. a a dog, summon his own version of Cerberus, which is a three-headed Doberman with fire and darkness powers, and that's my Cerberus. Yeah, that's yeah. What's I I Actually, think that's hands down the best depiction of Cerberus in a video game. Um, <laughs> yep. And it's, I, I, it's I like I like the Cer I like the Cerberus boss fight in FF14, but it's 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 based on the FF3 uh, the FF3 Cerberus design, which is not as cool as Koromaru's. Aww, yeah. It's also interesting to mention though that Koromaru himself is based on some like a kind of story that's grown to be a little bit of modern Japanese folklore. Yeah, the uh, the um, what is it? The Hachi Hachiko. The yep, Hachiko waiting for his owner. Mm -hmm, yep. Day after day. That's not that's not a myth or a legend. That's something that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I know, but like the story's kind of grown. You know well, what I mean? Oh yeah. And that one that one's actually an interesting story because it has actually happened in different cultures. Like there's a similar story in England, and there's a uh, similar stories in America too, where you have statues of dogs specifically honoring these dogs that waited for their master patiently. So it's almost like one of those universal myths that and uh legend since it's based in fact uh that's sprung up across the modern world so we're saying that hachiko and balto and these stories of loyal dogs are the 20th century version of like the myth of the flood <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was a comparison you were probably not expecting to hear today <laughs> yeah utna pishtim uh Deucalion, noah they're, they're they're just dogs <laughs> oh jeez oh <laughs> think of, of how events inspire stories and how everything can grow 
Yeah, and and that there are uh, there are similarities across mythologies that that did not have an obvious origin. Like uh, like I, I mean, uh, let's see, uh, Hachiman from from uh, from Indian folklore is uh, probably has the same origin as Son, as a uh, Son Goku or uh, or you know the the Monkey King from Chinese folklore. There, those are two very similar monkeys from sim- from nearby regions. That probably have a shared origin somewhere, but uh, I, I don't. I don't think you can make that same case for Utnapishtim versus Noah versus Deucalion. These, they, but the, this kind, that kind of story is shared between mythologies and repeats itself, even though they probably did not, you know, originate from the, exactly the same place. And that just goes mm-hmm. to show how how different peoples and uh, different storytellers and belief systems will always sort of go back to some of the same ideas because they're among the most universal and powerful ideas. Yeah. And going back to dogs, I mean, you uh, talk about the game Okami, where you're having... <laughs> An excellent dog game. <laughs> yes. An excellent, excellent, you know, the be- uh, the good dog, um, where you have so many elements of Japanese mythology, though I'm not sure the goddess Amaratsu, I, how she would feel about being depicted as a dog. Um. You know, I, I think Amaterasu is one of those goddesses that sort of has multiple forms. Like, some, sometimes it'll be a woman, sometimes it's a representation of the sun. Uh, but I, I don't know specifically of her being a dog. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to, you know, check some sources on that. But yeah, uh, I can't think of any stories where she's explicitly in a form like that. Yeah. But... It's, but it's, it's, not, also... it's, it's not like Hathor, who is sometimes a bull, sometimes a lioness, <laughs> sometimes a pregnant woman, sometimes nine right? separate women. Uh, <laughs> like, like, like the different aspects of mythology is something that's you have to sort of just accept when you, when you start reading these stories. <laughs> but so um, it's and it's really interesting that her main weapon of the game is a mirror when that is one of the core popular stories of Amaterasu of having the mirror to draw her out of the cave and yep, where she's hiding yeah and, and it's also a uh, a uh, subversion of the of the uh, of the shoot the um, the yacht the uh, damn it I, I think it's this I think it's the Susano Orochi story where uh, the three sort of sacred items that he uses are a mirror a sword and a chain and those are her three weapons. Three weapons. Uh, yep. And um and, and also weirdly are the the the, the like Kusanagi uh, Yadagarasu and uh, I had to forget the name of the third one are are also three characters in King of Fighters, <laughs> which is <laughs> so so there's a really weird <laughs> use of Japanese folklore that does not make any sense in the, in the Orochi storyline from the mid '90s King of Fighters fighting games. But the but yeah, the Japanese folklore shows up in all kinds of uh, strange ways and maybe like sometimes a more obvious way like the uh, like the entire game of Okami or the uh, the personas in Persona Four, and sometimes you know you'll just uh, You'll just collect those the the mirror beads and sword in a bunch of different RPGs. I know you do that in Tales of Symphonia, for one. They're, they're items that you get for beating three monsters called Sword Dancers. Uh, but yeah, it, it maybe it's unsurprising. A lot of Jack, Japanese folklore shows up in Japanese RPGs. In terms of items, I mean, they have they also borrow items from various traditions as well. Oh yeah. How many times do you uh, collect a sword called Ragnarok in Japanese RPGs? Or Excalibur. <laughs> That's a whole other set of stories that we haven't really touched on. I mean, the the fact that so many modern RPGs have some version of Phoenix Down. Yep. 
Yeah, in fact, in fact, that there are there are firebirds or phoenixes across so many different mythologies. Yep. I'm going back a minute. I don't know. I think Hokami's fine. If we have Loki who can literally shape shift, and we have, I I, I don't think I, I don't think it's disrespectful to Amaterasu to have uh, a game portray her as a very very good dog, but with with good yawning animations. I always appreciated those. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, Ami's uh, idol animations are really good in Okami. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. Well, and I love the fact that they took her brother, Susano, and who's known in mythology as being this boorish, unkempt, terrible character who at one oh, point... Yeah. Uh, cooks in the rice fields, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, cooks in rice fields and sh**s on her throne. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> and make him the, you know, slovenly, unkempt... Uh, swordsman who ends up, you know, having to be goaded into saving the world by her. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Ok Okami has a really sort of sly sense of humor. It does. About it, yeah. It's a. They take a playful tack with a lot of these interpretations of Japanese folk tales, and uh, it, it just because of how much of a goofball or and reluctant hero Susano is when he's when he's always portrayed as sort of brusque but uh, but but uh but also strong at least in the in the other in the other myths it's uh, and, and I don't know and this is a game about a very good dog and a very bad fox at one point and and you know taking the QB nine-tailed fox story into mm -hmm. a in, in into a very very interesting twist in fact that middle third of the game is probably my favorite part of the game yeah uh, but it, it's Okami is a Really cool celebration of uh, Japanese myth, and um, that reminds me. Uh, have you guys heard of a series called Far East of Eden? By no. name, I don't know much about it. It's a okay. The, now here's a here's the part where I wish that Robert Fenner was on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, but the uh, uh, it's a series of games for the old PC ninety engine series. That I think I think the first two were on the PC engine, and then it had. One on the SNES and one on the Saturn and PS1, I think. But it was a it was a very popular series of Japanese RPGs that never left Japan and are explicitly a uh, a fantas a fantastical interpretation of the Jiraiya story with you know Jiraiya the 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 boy who rode a, who rides a frog and Tsunade the girl who who uh, heals with slugs. Jiraiya and also a persona. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <Or funny enough. laughs> I, I, I think I think Orochimaru and uh, and Tonight it might be also, but <laughs> but the uh, but it's basically just um, a very very Japanese folktale influenced RPG series that was very popular in Japan in the '90s and then just sort of died out. And I know that you can get uh, a full translation, uh, you know, fan, fan translation of course of the SNES one, but I'm not sure about the others. Yeah. That, that that series has always been sort of the near the top of mine of my uh, Japan only wish I could play it kind of <laughs> video games. So do you have an idea if they take a similarly kind of playful take on, it on looks, their story? Or? Yes, it, it looks that way. Um, the, there's definitely a lot of humor and a lot of anime goofiness in that, uh, in that series. But it's also – it was the first – one of the first RPGs to use animated cutscenes and, uh, and, and sort of like you know, cutaways to, uh, to you know, big 90s-style art. Even though I think, the, I think the first game was 88 or 89, but I sort of think of it as a 90s series. It's – Again, when we were talking about doing an, uh, an episode based on mythology, I'm like, oh man, maybe I can talk about Far East of Eden. But <laughs> it's uh, it, it's it sort of starts with the Jiraiya myth, and then it just 
it looks like it completely goes off the rails after a few a few characters are introduced. And it's again, it's at least four games. I'd have to check a list. Going back to Valkyrie Profile for a minute, because I'm seeing a little bit of a contrast here, so I hope you don't mind. <laughs> oh, please. But it's, it's really interesting to compare those games that we just mentioned with Valkyrie Profile, because they use the mythological frame in a, for a very different effect there. Like I would say that Lenneth, the Valkyrie's traditional mythological job, uh, as someone who you, you know takes the souls of dead warriors and trains them to be among the Aesir, that kind of invokes some instant drama when you meet characters in Valkyrie Profile because you know that they're all going to die and you basically watch it. So they kind of use their mythological frame to create some drama and a little bit of sadness. Yeah, there's a lot of tragedy in the Ragnarok story of Norsemith because I think the entire pantheon dies except for eight to ten people or so. Yeah, very, very few are left. So, and that's actually mentioning Rag Ragnarok specifically is important because the whole part of the whole premise of Valkyrie Profile is it's basically a countdown to Ragnarok as right. well. So you have to win the game in a certain number of turns because at the last turn, that's Ragnarok. Yeah. And it's very dramatically at the beginning of each chapter, it'll be like X number of chapters left until the end of the world. We're like, okay, thank you, game. Now you get to go watch some more people die. I, I think that's a game I would definitely want to play with a guide because that that, that kind of stakes and that kind of and and I know the rigidness of uh, the different endings would just give mm -hmm. me would give me fill it would fill me with so much terror that I'm doing that I could be doing something wrong while playing. Well, that's uh, one of the and that's also one of those games that um, the guide itself actually dives a little more into the myths that are involved in the game, so it's a really interesting uh, accessory piece to the game and helping to understand what it's drawing from on North mythology and even the specific areas that it goes to in the game um, often have some tie back into the North mythology. That's interesting. And I mean, I, I enjoy the idea of Valkyrie profile for all of its gameplay innovations and for its interpretation of North Smith. I, I do want to play it. But again, like just being busy with other things and being slightly intimidated by uh, all of the stuff surrounding it, this was preventing me. But um, sh oh come on, you only have what thirty-five games on your list right now? Oh boy, and and I think five of them I'm supposed to play for the podcast this week. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, yeah, um. you know, uh, I was thinking about uh, Far East of Eden, another '90s series. That's a a very naked um, interpretation of myth that uh, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned yet. Is the glory of Heracles games? I I think only one of them came out in the West, and it was a DS game that's like a remake of Heracles Four or something. I don't I don't know much about the series, but there was for many years, dating from the NES, I think, a series of Japanese RPGs explicitly based on the Greek myth of Heracles or Hercules. But I don't I don't think there were elemental fairies in Greek myth or. Uh, uh, but there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of tunics and and buildings with columns. <laughs> I mean, they're ki they're kind of are uh, they're yeah, they're the nymphs. Yeah, well, the yeah, there are there are nymphs. Yeah, there are settings. And then there is a concept of multiple elements and humors that uh, was in Greek culture and Greek myths. But I don't think there was specifically, you know, fire nymphs giving you fire sword powers. 
<laughs> like like in the DS game. But uh, yeah, that's at least one JRPG that you know uh, takes advantage of myths in a very explicit way. Yeah, and another cute little old game that does something similar is God of Thunder, which I played on DOS forever ago. And they're loosely based on a lot of the big Loki's children, really. Um, the one I played was the one with the, the world serpent. Um, I, I, don't, I don't remember which one I played, but one of my neighbors did have a DOS God of Thunder game. Uh, I, I remember just when you threw the hammer, it sort of went across the whole screen until it hit something and returned to you. Oh yeah, and they and, uh, it hover like if you moved and it couldn't get back to you. Yeah, uh huh. And and the the puzzle rooms were like I, I don't know they they were very segmented like in houses or buildings, but were sometimes yeah. sometimes sort of overwhelmingly just you know like covered in spikes or something. It was I, I remember the or at least a God of Thunder DOS game, but I, I'm not very aware of the series. Yeah, they're like loosely based on some events from Norse mythology, but it is very much like kind of an action, almost platformer, puzzle solving, yeah, kind of thing. And I thought it, I thought it was weird Zelda with a boomerang hammer, basically. Yep, basically. <laughs> I mean, there's a village, at least in the one I played, where, where you can kind of do little Zelda-like quests that are limited to like you know finding an item to clear the way to some area. Anyway, maybe I misheard you. Are, are there multiples of these, or was this just one game? I think there were three. Okay, yeah, I do. I have yeah. no idea which one I played, <laughs> but I, but I definitely yeah. played one of them. <laughs> and it was yet another example of I think they set Loki up as an antagonist. Um, but it's cute because Odin is like your tutorial. Um, if you try and hit anyone in the village with a hammer, he will show up in a text box and say, "Son, I know it's fun to mess with mortals, but it will lower your score in this platforming game." Um, <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, uh, and okay, Hillary, other... you'll be thrilled to know that the first God of Thunder is available on Steam for free because it's a because the game is, was originally shareware and is now in the public domain. Yes, yay! I love the. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and the, another interesting thing about it is you can get trapped very easily by those puzzles that are in random buildings yes. or sometimes out in the environment. And one game mechanic, because you're Thor, you can choose to die to send yourself back to the beginning of the screen to redo the puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best interpretation of the Thor myth. Uh, we can get, get, yeah, get out of here, Marvel Comics. Get out of here, every other video game. This is the true Thor. <laughs> Busting his way through puzzles and messing with mortals until Odin tells him not to. <laughs> Yes. I, I, I can. I was not oh. expecting to talk about the Thor DOS game that I remember from 20 years ago in this podcast. <laughs> One of my neighbors had it, and I thought it was the strangest game I'd ever seen. I, I, I very vividly remember playing one of them. I didn't even know there was yeah. more than one. Really, really odd little cute thing, but worth mentioning. Um, all right, so to wrap up, does anybody have a favorite myth or favorite resources for learning about mythology that you want to share? Books. 
What was, do you remember what myth book that you had as a kid? I'm oh yeah, no, I, I still have it. It was called Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths, and it had yep. a, a lot of it, it had a lot of very beautiful illustrations, illustrations. and they all, and they and uh, My... it, it very stylized ones. And they also had a, a book of Norse myths that was also very good, but maybe not quite as memorable as the Greek one. But I. Yep, I yeah, I've gone through so many copies of that. I think I think I'm on my third hardcover of that because it, because invariably when I was especially when I was a kid, I would read them so much that the spine snapped and everything. So yeah, uh, well, I was I, too. I purposely snapped my spine now being a school teacher because then I could use the cards we la we took the pages and we laminated them in cards to <laughs> oh, use perfect, to yeah. read to the kids. Um, but um, my, my, my favorite my favorite picture from that whole book is the. Uh, the Pantheon family tree with, yeah! with, 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 with the big weird dead-eyed Zeus in the center. <laughs> because I, that's, how, that's how I remember who's related to what in Greek myth. I think of, I think of that vaguely creepy Zeus family tree from <laughs> yeah. of Greek myths. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, it's, it's an excellent book and, uh, and um, great for adults or children just because it's so big and cool and covers a lot of the bases. Like, I, me I remember... It doesn't have every single Greek myth in it, of course, because it's I mean, you know it's it's aimed at children, so you you won't find the Ovid's Metamorphoses version of Pyramus and Thisbe in there, but it it, it covers a lot of ground. Yeah, agreed. But I if agree. you if if you want a more traditional Greek myth resource, I mean, like Bullfinches or Hamiltons are the 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 textbooks I see floating floating yeah. around the most. Yeah. All right. Well, I will add one. So there's a. YouTube channel called Crash Course that partnered with the guy that used to um, do segments for PBS Idea channels, and they have a Crash Course mythology, which is a lot of fun. If you're interested in how myths tie together and kind of common themes, that's a cool YouTube series. And I should actually mention uh, the thing that I forgot to mention when we started this podcast is that actually Edith Hamilton was the founder of my high school. Oh. oh. Okay. Which is why, part of the reason why I got to do every single possible thing I could do with mythology, including in <laughs> third grade building a uh, five foot Athena sculpture. Uh, Are, were, you even after the... were you even five feet tall in third grade? No. <laughs> <laughs> It was larger than I was, and it was great. It, uh, it was modeled after um, the Athena Parthenos um, from Athens, uh, and it sat in my basement for three months until it finally uh, dissolved into icky bits. But um, uh, there's one book that I would highly recommend for everybody is uh, Zeus Grant's Stupid Wishes. Oh, Lord. <laughs> this 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 book has been thrown around our group of friends uh since the wee times uh it just it's absolutely hilarious takes on greek mythology on uh, going into a lot of the backstories on each of the myths sort of being told almost as if deadpool was reading the great uh the greek and roman gifts <laughs> very modern kind of language lots of profanity it covers a lot of ground though i mean it's got sections for most of the major areas of the world and mythological traditions it is a beautiful beautiful book and it's I, a great i hope it has a lot of jokes about zeus being a terrible deadbeat dad oh, yeah. i do th i think it does uh but it's Good. one of it's one of those books that for a lot of people who had to suffer through really dry classical uh, mythology classes is a great way of getting back into the 
fun of mythology. How is Aeschylus's Prometheus different from Hesiod's Prometheus? And how did the <laughs> Hesiod's Theogony influence the tone of Aeschylus's the Prometheus bound? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. That's, uh, actually, sadly, that's better than my uh, <laughs> last college course on classic mythology, where my professor talked for three hours straight on the various mushrooms he had tried while uh, supposed to be talking about Greek mythology. Uh, oh, wow. Wow, I can't even think of a single mushroom in Greek mythology. So maybe maybe I just haven't read enough colorful interpretations of Pandora's boxes monsters. <laughs> Apparently he wrote an entire paper on how Greek myths were it, it all written because the Greeks were high all the time. <laughs> well, you would say that the Greeks were drunk all the time because they did have a god of wine, but also Greek wine would have been watered down compared to modern wine. So I don't know, hard to say. Maybe, maybe the Greeks were just a bunch of lightweights. Well, and also they uh, they were all lead poisoned too. Uh, that, that is true. I I have one question for each of you. Um, okay. Is there a specific portrayal of myth in video games you haven't mentioned yet? That's like just one of your favorites that you want to shout out before we close the close down the episode. Like I'll I'll, I'll go first because I I can't believe you haven't mentioned this yet. In um probably my favorite Atlas game, not named Persona. Uh. Uh, Digital Devil Saga. It's set in a weird, possibly post-apocalyptic lit wasteland, where uh, the names of where the place names are based on on uh, chakras, and the uh, and uh, people turn into monsters named after uh, various mytho- uh, monsters from various mythologies, but mostly um, devas and asuras from from Hindu and proto-Hindu myth. Oh. So it's a it's it's a completely insane game. It also has a Cerberus in it randomly. It's one of the few non non Hindu names in it, <laughs> but uh, but it's like it uses the um, sort of the concept of the soul and karma and dharma in metaphor for traveling through this world, and has a really weird like sort of not really cyberpunk more more like 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 grim punk interpretation uh storyline interpretation but you do turn into uh asuras from mythology and try to eat other people turning into asuras <laughs> so it's 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 a, it's brutal and weird but also one of the coolest ps2 rpgs and it's very very rooted in uh in some hindu and some buddhist uh names and iconography wow yeah you describing it that way kind of Makes me imagine some of those giant battles from like the Mahabharata or the Ramayana. Uh, mm, not not really. It, it's more like, oh shoot! It, it's like it's like people with guns over a wasteland turning into monsters and then trying <laughs> to eat the other people they're fighting. It's it's okay, so it's, it's grimmer. It's, it's real strange, but it's uh, again one of the coolest PS2 RPGs. Uh, we we I tried to replay it for the podcast uh, oh, oh, like around two years ago and ultimately failed because I, I um, because it's a, it's a challenging long game and I didn't I wasn't able to finish it in time. So I even like apologize to the listeners in part two of that podcast. But it, it's it's a very very cool PS2 RPG that incorporates that mythology extremely well, and I'm a little embarrassed I didn't bring it up earlier. Do either of you want to do a final shout out before we close it out? Um, I think I'll just talk a little bit. I was something I was thinking of saying earlier too was actually about Shiva because that's an interesting. It's interesting what's happened to Shiva in Final Fantasy because traditionally Shiva is associated with destruction, not necessarily completely negative, but just like things ending. Um, but traditionally Shiva is also multifaceted, and I learned that 
one of those facets of Shiva is actually female and associated with water. So mm. it's kind of interested how that's become conflated with possibly another thing from Japanese myth, which is the Yuki Ona, the snow maidens as well. So I think I just want to point out Shiva as sort of like hmm. a melding of various imagery from myth. Though I will say I'm always disappointed that uh, they don't have Shiva as a dance master. <laughs> very, very good point. Um, traditionally a dance master. But also the, I, I, for my game, we did touch on upon uh, Shadow Hearts and such, but uh, the original Shadow Hearts, not the covenant of the various biblical and little sort of fun tie-ins of really, really archaic roots of Christianity has always been a fascination for me. And the original game of the series, Kadelka, tying into all those really sort of darker myths that people forget about when they talk about uh, biblical stories. All right. So in terms of housekeeping, um, next up on Retro, we're going to have a game journal on Until Dawn. So look out for that. And then on the schedule after that, we are going to be playing Trials of Mana, which is very, very exciting. I know for many of us, long anticipated game. Woohoo! Woo! Um, and also around that time, we're going to have a very negative episode. That, that episode I, is still in the planning stages, but it's going to be a lot of fun to record. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to people about that. Yeah. It sounds interesting from what I've heard so far. We're too so positive we're on the we're too positive on this podcast. We just we just <laughs> need to we just need to just just let the hate out for uh for a full episode. You mean uh, besides the quiz shows? Yes. Oh 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 you heard me on the quiz on you you heard me wish for everyone's failure on the quiz shows you mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh -huh. I'm I'm thrilled at how much I saw them struggle. That was that was a that was a blast. <laughs> Oh, and, and permit me to cut in for a minute, Hillary. Speaking of quiz shows, uh, we've done some experimentation on Retro Encounter the past few months. We had an episode all about a specific villain. We had that quiz show episode. We had a movie episode. And we had a revisited episode where we where we reexamined a an old subject of the podcast from a few years ago. And uh, so, listeners, if you have suggestions for a new episode in one of those formats, like a new villain episode or a, a new quiz show all about a certain subject or a new, another old Retro Encounter game you want to see revisited, please let me know because I'm, I I thought all those episodes were fun and I think we can bring back those formats again. So please reach out because I, I don't know what people want unless they tell me. So yeah, listen, where, where can they reach you, uh, reach you by? Uh, they can email the podcast. Retro at RPGfan.com is the best way. And we that feedback will help us know how to proceed with some of these really neat new formats. So please, please share the feedback. And you can also comment on our old forums. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord. Um, we're streaming quite often on Twitch, so visit us there as well. Um, and be sure to take a look at Random Encounter. That's our podcast, more focused on what people are currently playing in current events. Um, and we're also working on hopefully getting rhythm encounter going as well to focus on music um and remember to review us on itunes google play or your chosen podcast listening venue um and let's also mention where we can be contacted individually um i'm ep fire on discord uh, and that's the best way to reach me how about you lucy 
Um, I'm Jess Idris, J-E-S-I-D-R-E-S on Twitter, Tumblr, uh, and various other platforms. Great. And how about you, Slosey? Um, I am at the real monsoon on Twitter most of the time. I'm also Monsoon Mike on Discord and Monsoon on the RPG fan forums. Great. Well, well, we hope everyone's enjoyed this preliminary discussion of mythology. There's a lot to unpack here and a lot more that we could have covered and may talk about again with individual games or or not. So yeah, let us know your favorite mythological representations and RPGs, and we'll see you next time.